You're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. In this episode of The Lodestar podcast, we'll look at the implications of more COVID lockdowns in China. How container lines are snapping up logistic bolt-ons with Blu-ray and Jeffco seemingly the latest to be swallowed whole. And we have the latest on air and shipping capacity and prices and poor congestion challenges. We hear why some SME forwarders are struggling to buy space from lines and we deep dive into the air charter market. I'm joined today by the Lodestar's Mike Wackett, AFS's Chris Higgins, Glenn Hogburn, CEO of the Air Charter Association and Peter Sand, Chief Analyst at Zenita. It's end-to-end logistics that is a worry yeah, and is a stake here. We see rapid rising congestion also due to the fact, of course, that Shanghai is just so essential for the world of global container business. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. And with no further ado, let me bring in my co-host today. It's Mike Wackett, a man whose distinguished career in shipping and journalism makes him the perfect partner for a sober look at the wave of huge stories that continue to break over our industry. Mike, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks very much for that introduction, Mike. I'm not quite sure about always being sober, but uh, nevertheless, delighted to be here. Well, we're not drinking today, Mike, but we are going to analyze some of these big deals. Now, there's two in particular I want to talk about involving European container lines. MSC has completed the the $6.3 billion deal to buy Bellore Africa Logistics, and CMA CGM is poised to buy Jeffco. Now, firstly, what's the significance of the MSC deal? And, And just let me give our listeners some context about what's going on with the European container lines. Just over the last year, or even just the last few months, we've had Maersk has been expanding in Africa, has agreed a, a JV for logistics services with Grindrod covering South Africa. Hapag Lloyd has agreed to buy African container line uh, DAL last month. Hapag Lloyd also bought Nile Dutch, a West African container line last year. And now we've got MSCs moving into Africa too. Is, is this the new scramble for Africa, so to speak? I think it, it's really the next growth area in regards to MSC. I think what really whetted the appetite of the of the folks in Geneva about this deal was the uh, 16 container terminal concessions in West Africa, which will give MSC real control of that high growth market. I think the Boloris logistics business as per se came with the deal, but I think unlike Maersk and CMA CGM, MSC does not have any great ambitions in that direction. In fact, um, it does regard forwarders and MVOCC operators as customers and doesn't generally step on their toes. Bellori seemed to have fallen out of love with African logistics over the years. And I think the timing was right and the carriers obviously had the money. Okay. So I would just like to add to that. I think, Mike, that with these lines buying up some of these ports and investing more in the consolidation of that liner sector, it's probably worth noting that Camiso is just the... 21 strong group of Eastern and Southern African nations has launched an investigation in potentially coordinated pricing behavior from Maersk, CMA, CGM and United Africa feeder line. And there's another 
separate competition investigation in Nigeria underway into alleged liner price fixing. Now, of course, Lodestar.com will continue to report on the findings of these investigations and concurrent similar investigations in South Korea and the US as they move forward. But back to that second deal, Mike. It looks like French carrier CMA CGM is probably going to acquire French automotive and logistics firm Jeffco, which is currently 75% owned by Russian Railways, which obviously has been hit by US and EU trade sanctions since uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This is all happening with French presidential elections about to take place this month. Is this President Macron trying to show he's looking after French jobs or is this the only option in the face of sanctions that keeps Jeffco functioning as a company? I think you're right. I mean, they obviously have to sell this in some shape or form. And uh, I suppose it's pretty limited who's in the situation to, to buy this. You know, once again, we find, you know, the carriers with a lot of money to burn have that fortunate position. And quite possibly they might have needed to repay a few favors from the past to keep Jeff going in French hands. I really don't see it as a great fit for CMA CGM vis-a-vis Siva, but nonetheless, you know, as I said, the French transport group's got money to burn and, uh, they're obviously the ones, although obviously we still not hearing any confirmation from CMA CGM themselves. You mentioned Siva Logistics there, which CMA CGM bought in 2019. You don't see Jeffco as a great addition to that existing logistics platform at CMA CGM. I mean, they've got some reasonable revenue numbers and you know, strength in certain markets such as automotive, but you don't see it as a good fit. Well, I think they'll be going into some of the same areas and, and effectively, if you're putting all your money on, on a one particular forwarder as CMA CGM are doing that effectively, why would you want to bring somebody else in? So effectively, it's going to make it more complicated, not impossible, but obviously because they're in the automotive side, but, but basically I would imagine that in Siva, there'll be a few hackles raised on this one as to, okay, no, we, we've got ourselves in, in a good position here where we're running well, and now we're bringing somebody else in that maybe is going to queer the pitch a little bit. Well, we'll have to see if that, that deal goes through and how well accepted within the group. Exactly. I think, you know, elsewhere we've seen French forwarder Judith by Keppel Logistics, which strengthened its contract logistics business, Southeast Asia. But of course, the big story in Asia right now is China's very, very strict COVID lockdown policies, which continue to impact global container and air freight markets. Let me welcome now Peter San, chief analyst at Zenita. Hello, Peter. Thanks, Mike. Good to be here. Peter, before we look at rates, let's look at these lockdowns in China and how they have affected shipping this past month. And when I say shipping, we're not just talking about that port ship interface where we already have a lot of congestion at some of those Chinese ports. But this is about the wider logistics network, the trucking, these different internal borders that are making things very difficult to organize and how this affects the ability of manufacturers to keep up with production schedules. So in fact, now these lockdowns are really having a detrimental impact on economic growth. Nomura has been calling the current lockdowns the, the worst downward pressure since the first wave of COVID in spring 2020. Now, in late March, this August got a, a step worse with this two-stage lockdown of Shanghai, which is, is the largest container hub in the world. How are you reading how this 
plays out for our industry and for global trade flows? I mean, right on the heels of uh, the lockdown in Shenzhen two weeks ago, this is, of course, another curveball being thrown at global uh, supply chain logistics. But I must also say that uh, the uh, Chinese authorities, even though they always claim that ports, terminals are operating normally, which to me is, is well, useless information when, uh, as you mentioned, the, the manufacturing facilities are closed down, the issues with truckers, et cetera. It's end-to-end -end logistics that is a worry here and is a stake here. But cutting to the chase, we expect at least longer delays, more congestion to be around. I think we see rapid rising congestion also due to the fact, of course, that Shanghai is just so essential for the world of global container business. I mean, Shenzhen is huge, but Shanghai is epic. In Asia, we have seen more disruption that perhaps meets the eye in terms of the, the slowdown in, in, in exports out of the wider Asian region. But I think that is also of essence right now. These lockdowns come at a point of time where Asian exports is coming down. And you also see that, of course, in spot trade rates uh, that have been trending down for quite a few weeks now. Just looking at how that might have a domino effect or a ripple effect on those global shipping patterns. If we have a lockdown now in Shanghai, let's assume maybe there's not another series of lockdowns in the next few months, because we can't tell there, there has been constant lockdowns, but let's just say this, this lockdown in Shanghai lasts until mid-April. Now, what does that two week sort of break in that exporting volume, what does that mean for, for say the Trans-Pacific trade or the Asia-Europe in terms of when some of these volumes are arriving? for that early summer period. And then I guess there's a lot knock-on effects for the peak season already, isn't there? Yeah, I think if we if we jump to the opposite side of the Pacific, I think the uh, ports of, of LA and Long Beach are making the most of this weakness, actually. They are running down the, the long list of, of ships waiting in line to, to call the port. And they are actually improving on the productivity right now in that massively congested area. That has been basically the center of a lot of attention over the past uh, year and a half now. The month of February was no surprise, a very, very busy month of February, I guess. Records uh, still come around the busiest of February ever. But then again, the most important thing is that, that they keep up the turnaround, the throughput of the boxes in order to prepare not only for the upcoming labor union discussions, uh, but certainly also for, for the peak season, they come around uh, very, very soon. But in essence, I mean, uh, liners, forwarders, shippers face another round of issues with the lockdown in, in Shanghai right now. We see cargo being diverted down to Ningbo. That will surely also plug up if this extends all the way into to mid-April, as you suggest, uh, Mike. Uh, so fingers crossed, it will not do that. But I know from history also that, uh, that we may only see a couple of weeks of, of specific lockdown, but, uh, but the knock-on effects are based and impacted and felt for months uh, ahead in terms of end-to-end -end logistics. So these disruptions are basically the essence of, of what has driven up also the, the markets in recent years. And we, we just see one, say, obstacle being removed and two new added. That's not going in the right way. You mentioned there that we've seen a, a reduction in that port congestion down in on the US West Coast. How has all this been playing out in terms of spot rates, both on the Trans-Pacific and on 
the Asia Europe they're weakening a bit, yeah. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's been the, the the talk for for quite a few weeks now. We still see a strengthening of the long-term contract rates as more shippers and also liners seek to lock in volumes with big key priority shippers. But will they deliver in the end the resilience that they all seek? I think the jury is still out of that. We have still say much to see in terms of improvement of, of schedules, but in terms of spot rates going forward, the most recent disruptions in Shenzhen basically brought around some weakness also in the Pearl River Delta and spot rates. Uh, so all expectations is basically also that what we have seen in terms of easing of spot rates right now is likely to extend also for the coming weeks, perhaps even to a larger uh, extent than what we have seen in the uh, most recent weeks where we have seen a gradual drop. But time will tell shortly as we move into to, to early April whether there's likely to be uh, a drop because obviously anecdotal evidence surely tells us that tables have turned on some key uh, trade lanes uh, where uh, all of a sudden liners have requested the, the forwarders for more boxes to be shipped. So maybe we we are at the, well, at somewhat a turning point in the, in the whole story, regardless of the many different obstacles that we constantly see, most of them being COVID related, but in terms of demand, uh, we may be at a turning point right now, Mike. And just looking at that China-US trade again, as you say, there's been a softening into the West Coast from from Asia. Is this apart from the demand elements? Is this to do with the, that dock working negotiations that people are planning ahead in case there's more disruptions there and putting more cargo into the East Coast? Yeah, I think it has all to do with that. Uh, shippers would hate to see uh, another round of disruption lengthening the waiting time in US West Coast. But what we see right now on the US East Coast is, of course, congestion growing and building around key uh, import hubs. And that is the one trade also singling itself out in terms of the decline that we see on spot rates for many of the other main halls that in most recent weeks we have actually seen the spot rates into US East Coast also go up. But at the same time, I think what we need to know also that what we at Seneca call the priority shipment fee, that uh, that extra surcharge that you're paying if you're just a little bit uh, too late and, and uh, too much of a hurry. That have also come significantly down in most recent weeks. So you, of course, need to focus on what is your, say, end total cost of things. So whereas you may see base rates still moving up, some of those emergency surcharges are coming down. So it's more complex than what we look at right now. But in essence, I think shippers for sure are doing what they need in order to make, say, resilience stick or improve in their supply chains and moving away from US West Coast ladder that is, uh, that is doomed to face disruptions uh, come summer. And, and finally, Peter, you mentioned just earlier, and this is something we're going to have to keep an eye on, that lines are turning back to forwarders and looking for cargo to fill their vessels, which is a very interesting development when, when we've been here in this trend where they're moving towards their bigger shipper carriers, the bigger BCOs, or they're, or they're trying to go direct to shippers. Now, we're going to hear from an SME forwarder later on this podcast who's struggling to find space with carriers on certain trade lanes. Do you have any advice for people in that particular boat, so to speak? Is, is there time coming? Is there time nigh? Every shipper needs to look at their own freight procurement strategies, and they need to find a way to position themselves 
as the shipper of choice for the carriers. They need to be selected. They need also to have full insights, of course, of their own requirements for freight to, to spot where and why a significant and interesting counterparty to the liners. And that's where you pitch and where you basically make, say, in yourself heard with the carriers. If you're just moving a few boxes and, and it's nice to have you on, on any, say, digital spot to the market platforms, the carrier is more than happy to take your money in, in that way. Uh, but if you are capable of positioning yourself as a key player on perhaps just a few of those uh, trade lanes, then you may end up with, uh, with the other hand in the negotiations right there. Peter Sand, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast today. Always a pleasure, Mike. Like we've heard there about how these lockdowns are hurting trade flows, but it's not 100% clear how this is impacting each port necessarily. What I do have is some exclusive numbers from Project 44, which show that container export dwell times at Shanghai dropped significantly from 3.18 days on 28th of March to 2.2 days on 3rd of April. Mike, do you see lockdowns in China remaining a key disruptor in the months ahead unless there's a policy change? Yeah, absolutely. I think this uh, zero tolerance policy, they may have to review at some stage because what we're seeing, it's um, effectively the lockdowns and they're extending indefinitely. I mean, what I heard, in fact, yesterday was it's a total mess. I mean, okay, the porks are still working, but if the warehouses are not open, there's no trucking, uh, the terminals might well as be shut. We heard yesterday as well that 2M were blanking one of its loops. And we expect some of the other two alliances to do something similar, because even though rates are still very high for the cargo they have, they will be not uh, so inclined to want to sell the ships half empty. And Mike, of course, in China, we've also got disruptions at airports in part due to some of the things that you mentioned there. You know, it's not just about whether the airports themselves are functioning or the carriers are impacted by some of these restrictions on their personnel, but it's also about trucking companies getting cargo to airport if they're open. Now, according to TAC index, this is all put in downward pressure on international air freight prices, which is obviously has been offset somewhat by higher fuel costs and new fuel surcharges. But I should highlight that this is no generic rates picture and possibly hold on to your hat here, Mike. This disruption in China has also seen demand for the short haul flights between Shenzhen and Hong Kong go rather crazy. We've got rates of around 3.5 US dollars per kilo on that route now, which for a bit of context, that's a similar sort of price bracket to a pre-COVID Trans-Pacific flight from China. But switching lanes, that China-Europe route, just as a general trade lane, not so much on the air cargo side, we've had some capacity on the railways obviously being lost because of war in Russia. So those routes through Russia and Ukraine obviously aren't available to the same degree as they were before. Supply chains in Europe, Mike, uh, I know this is something you've been covering. In and out of those major ports in particular, they're still suffering from congestion, aren't they? Yes, they, they are. And um, I mean, it, it is starting to ease in certain ports. We saw yesterday that the 2M was returning to Phoenix though with one of its loops, saying that situations improved dramatically. But we've had isolated incidents just the other week even from Dublin, effectively, there was a block on uh, exports going in and that caused quite a lot of problems for shippers. So it's a bit patchy. The other thing 
has to be said that, you know, what the carriers are doing is to, um, consolidate and concentrate their cargoes. For instance, some of the loops really are effectively just doing one or maybe only two ports. So cargo is being overlanded to a certain port and then hopefully relayed back. But in certain instances that can take a while because, uh, there's a shortage of feeder vessels, there's congestion, of course, at both ends. And, and people are saying that when cargo is overlanded, that can take two to three weeks for that to come back through the system. So that's how carriers are dealing with that. But it, you know, often it's really quite late in terms of communication and shippers are sort of not advised until the last minute that their cargo is going to be overcarried. And then the communication coming back from carriers is, is very sparse, uh, uh split shipments are quite a often occur and et cetera. So it is still quite a mess in North Europe. I've spoken to some ports myself and there's still confusion about which cargoes you can and can't hold relating to sanctions on Russia. There's a bit of a, a patchwork approach to handling Russian ships or potentially Russian owned ships as well. But let's just turn back to those air markets, if we might, by looking at how charter operators have been faring through all this. Obviously this ties in with the invasion of Ukraine which has changed the shape of this particular sector, which has lost a lot of capacity as a result of this. I would like to welcome Glenn Hogburn, who's the CEO of the Air Charter Association. Hello, Glenn. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. Glenn, we've had two years of a pandemic as essentially has denuded the air cargo industry of capacity, and we've had all of these different companies, retailers, container lines, forwarders, all trying to get hold of air cargo capacity of any sort, whether that's charters or, or space or now, presumably this has all been great for your members, certainly in terms of rates, has it? Well, yes. The last two years have, have really changed the air charter landscape significantly. And for the air cargo part, uh, part of the industry, it's really rejuvenated uh, that area. Air cargo, I think it's fair to say was having quite a tough time prior to the pandemic. Rates were really squeezed down to the minimum, trying to compete with other more economical methods of transport. But the pandemic allowed the industry to demonstrate its sort of flexibility and adaptability to meet a huge increase in demand. Um, and most importantly, the key advantage of speed of delivery, which is its overriding factor. Yeah, I mean, it's been amazing to see that creativity and motivation to increase capacity around the whole industry in an effort to support various humanitarian, PPE, medical and urgent cargo deliveries. And it's definitely had a positive knock-on effect on charter rates. Dem and anytime demand outstretches supply, that, that is an inevitable impact. I would probably estimate rates could have been up to 30 to 40% higher in, than 2019. However, it's important to note that that's not all converted into profits as operators costs have also increased significantly during the time. We've had rising fuel prices. We've had additional crew requirements, managing the various challenging travel requirements um, and restrictions, which have all, all required additional resource um, to be focused on it. So costs have definitely gone up as well. So it, it's, it, there is a bit of a balance there, but overall it's been a very positive time for the cargo sector of the industry. And that's resulted in new interest in investing into our cargo, which is absolutely great. And then we'll have more deals like, I mean, yesterday, I think European Cargo announced that they closed a, a finance to deal to grow and uh, fully convert their, their A340 fleet into cargo operators. 
So things like that will, will start to be seen as a way of uh, sort of the industry rejuvenating, which is really great to see. Oh, yeah, they certainly did need a bit of rejuvenation if we go back to 2019. <laughs> Can we just zoom in slightly on, on the disruptions that we're seeing in air freight markets right now? You, you mentioned the whole pandemic period. At Chinese airports, particularly Hong Kong included, we've had these COVID regulations. Now they've varied and they've affected crews and they've affected the airport operations themselves for this two-year period, essentially. Everyone's been after capacity and that has really been a drain on that capacity. Now, at the moment, we've also got this terrible war in Ukraine. We've got this closure of airspace. We've got rail cargo shifting to air as well as ocean because it cannot go from Asia to Europe at the moment on those rail services via Russia. We've also got loss from key markets of capacity as supplied by Volga Dnepr and Antonov's AN124's Airbridge Cargo's fleet has also been lost, which is obviously has affected project shippers especially. But how is all of this affecting demand for your members' services or for charter operators in particular markets? Does this vary by geography? How's it all looking at the moment? Well, the market was already under capacity pressure, as, as we've sort of just discussed about the supply chain issues that have been exasperated by the pandemic. So now that's been further increased um, with the reduced capacity and increased demand. So as you mentioned, the capacity is reduced due to various sanctions and airspace restrictions over Europe, but that's impacted on global sort of transport routes from particularly from Asia to Europe has had the biggest impact. And the heavy transport aircraft, as you mentioned, air cargo, uh, average cargo had 17 747s. Volga had 15 other, other aircraft, heavy sort of lifting cargo, outsized cargo aircraft. Even the Antonov 225 then was destroyed um, in Ukraine. It's the largest aircraft in the world, capable of carrying over 250 tons of cargo. The impact of the loss of those aircrafts on the market is quite significant. Now, and hopefully that's the situation will start to resolve itself from peaceful return. And some of those aircraft may be able to return to operations and taking cargo. But for the moment and for the foreseeable future, I think those are out of, out of um, commission. On top of that, flight distances and flight times and fuel burns have, have all increased, which will cause for more cost increases as airlines have rerouted their flights between Asia to Europe to avoid Russian airspace. I think average flight times on the six key trade routes between Asia and Northern Europe increased by about 3.4% um, within days of the Russian invasion. For some operators, longer routes can be extended by three to four hours of flight, which is a huge increase um, in cost. Some carriers have even cancelled those routes from Asia to Europe as they face longer and costlier routes. JAL and ANA, for example, found it just simply uneconomic to reroute their flights, which adds over a thousand nautical miles to get to Europe. And those carriers that do continue to fly um, will pass on the higher fuel costs and the weight of that additional fuel will limit the amount of cargo they can actually carry as well. So it further puts on the pressure. There are also wider impacts of the war, I suppose, to be considered. You've got Messors with, there's over 500 aircraft grounded in Russia. Currently, most of those vessels are unable to repossess the aircraft. I think only five of the 21 Russian operators who've got leased aircraft are actually voluntarily returning aircraft. BOC, there's a case um, in New York that's open this week, I think, with BOC and uh, Airbridge Cargo um, over their 747-800s, and uh, they're taking legal action to try and, try and recover the aircraft. But ultimately, the lost revenue and costs for leasing companies will, will have an, in, an increase in costs on lease rates in the, in the coming uh, months and years to try and recover those. 
Then you've got uh, the insurers, um, potentially they're facing uh, huge total loss claims um, for their aircraft, which um, inevitably will impact on insurance costs for, for operators. And then I think we're all well aware of the significant jump in uh, fuel prices. And um, we're seeing at the fuel pumps on an everyday basis ourselves. But if you, when you look at um, Jet A1, that's increased by about $70 a barrel, which is about 75% increase in just over a month, which is a huge, huge impact. And the carriers like Cargo Lux um, are already starting to add surcharges on their long haul operations. So you, you're seeing a, a wide range of impacts on the industry that are, that are ultimately all going to impact on costs uh, in the short term. Hopefully that will, uh, as the situation calms down and, and hopefully peace returns, that, that may start to return to some form of normality. As you mentioned there, Glenn, there's a lot of moving parts in this market at the moment, and there's very little visibility about what lies ahead. So this is a very broad question and we very unfairly on you, we have very little time, but what in your view would need to happen for air freight markets to go back to something like late 2019, that state then that we had then, or is this not necessarily desirable for people who've got charter capacity? Well, that's an interesting question. And personally, I'm not sure it will in the near future. There are so many factors that are continuing to impact the world that the need for fast and efficient cargo transport is almost certainly going to continue. We hope the peace returns to Europe and the pandemic continues to be suppressed um, so that restrictions are removed. Ultimately, the air charter industry is cyclical. Um, and personally, I don't think this is any different. It's just, we've seen a much sharper change due to the global level of the recent demand drivers. As other forms of transport stabilize, some demand will reduce and I hope pricing will fall back in line accordingly so that the air charter remains an attractive option for fast, efficient deliveries, which is quite important for the industry. It's almost impossible to predict what might happen. One thing I would say is just from a, a niche in the industry, the broker side that deals with a lot of this connecting capacity to actual uh, operators, they're having to work really hard at the moment and um, very, very hard indeed um, to locate that capacity. They happen to be really inventive using their knowledge and experience to negotiate the best deals for their clients. And I think they still hold a really major, uh, strong player uh, position in, in that market to, to help customers get to the right capacity at the right rates. Glenn Hogburn, thank you very much for joining us on the Lodestar podcast today. And thank you very much. So, Mike, there's not much scope for getting air cargo markets back to pre-COVID levels, as Glenn pointed out there. Well, certainly not right now. But this is also true on the oceans. Shippers have been telling us for the last two years, and it hasn't gone away, that these sustained higher costs, the schedule unreliability that you talked about before, and this simple inability to find space, as we have covered on the Lodestar podcast previously, it's not really going away. No. You're right. And I, I take my hat off to, to some of these small affordances and, and MBOCCs that having had to navigate the market for the past 18 months or so, but by and large, many of their customers have stayed quite loyal and know that they're fighting even harder for them. And I think that some shippers that have been poached by carriers now regret losing that entrepreneurial quality of, of affordance. That, that's a good point, Mike, and I, I think it's probably a great point to bring in Chris Higgins, who's the Commercial Director at AFS Global, a UK-based forwarder, which predominantly focuses on the Asia westbound trade into Europe. Chris, thanks for joining us. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. Now, Chris, we've highlighted many times in the lodestar.com and on this podcast that 
smaller forwarders and their customers are being squeezed out on some ocean trades as carriers have started focusing more on selling direct to shippers or, or concentrating on their largest BCO customers. Can you tell me how this has been affecting your business? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting point, mate. So as an as a SME freight forwarder and for ourselves and more importantly, our customers, we've really felt the effects of these changing carrier strategies focusing either directly on the importers themselves or certainly favoring the volume-based importers. Pre-pandemic, there were lots of space available to forwarders and, and smaller importers, but very much changed. And we supported three or four of the major carriers for the last 15 years and, and really found that in the change of the strategies, there's been no loyalty reciprocated back from those carriers. This we've seen allocations that we had previously reduced or, or, or even removed. I think the biggest impact for us was our largest VIP customer supported Maersk throughout 2021 and committed all of their volume to, you know, to Maersk. And although Maersk had publicized their desire to implement this strategy and, and go direct, when that changes, the impact of the cargo, not just for AFS, but for other forwarders and, and, and importers using the Maersk service meant there was a lot more cargo back in the market for other carriers. One of the carriers told us, for example, that they'd had phone calls from importers that they'd been chasing for years and, and never had the opportunity to support. And now with this abundance of cargo in the market, the remaining carriers are able to be more selective about potentially which commodities or, or trade routes they take. And therefore there's less options for the smaller, but still solid size volume importers to be able to pick. So I think it was the overall impacts, not just from the Merce move, but the appetite for the carriers to then decide what they wanted to carry and therefore leaving companies like us and our, and our customers with much reduced options. So I think, uh, yeah, a couple of points there, Chris. So obviously Maersk itself is, has announced this strategy and where it's going to go. And it's absolutely within its rights to, to accept or, or decline any sort of business. It's been very open about what it's planning to do, but you're saying the, the impact this has had on the wider market by taking so much capacity away from that market, it's sort of shrunk on some of those trades, the amount of liner capacity available to smaller forwarders or, or shippers who have sort of been frozen out on some shipping lanes. Is it, which specific lanes are we talking about here? So we're, we're very much predominant in the Asia westbound market. So Bay, Baseport, China into the UK. And the, the, some of the challenges have been that the UK market, the appetite from the carriers for UK cargo as well has impacted. There's extra cargo available now to carry, but the UK is still seen from our perspective, talking to the carriers as, as a destination that they're not always keen to service. So your ports are, are more sort of prioritized and favored. So I think that adds to the to the availability of options for our importers through the carriers and what they're, what they're prepared to commit to. There's also like a huge element of the rates being particularly high at the moment. So one carrier in particular also chose not to offer long-term contract allocation because the spot market was so high and, and basically a yield-based strategy has meant that again, the loyalty, and this is probably our biggest challenge, Mike, is that we've been loyal to the carriers for a long time, riding through previous challenges with them. And when we needed them most to support a forwarder like AFS, we found that actually there are other factors that they consider first rather than that loyalty. And that's, that's very difficult. We've got a certain amount of cargo through our customers to offer the lines and we give full support. And then when that's not reciprocated, that's really challenging. And there are only so many methods to move cargo from Asia Westbound. So there aren't a huge amount of choices for us to go to. So although we speak to all lines and, and, and have been loyal, we've still found that that isn't, that isn't being returned when the rates are high and when there's a huge amount of cargo available. 
And presumably then that means you won't be loyal in the future or, or forwarders like yourself. You'd have no incentive to be loyal in the future when you've been treated so poorly with this high rate environment. And as with any market, eventually these rates will decline. So at some point, the, the boot will be on the other foot. Is that something that maybe carriers or when you speak to their representatives aren't taking into account or thinking far enough forward on? So I think it's a really interesting point around loyalty, Mike. My previous business experience has been in other markets. And this is the only market I've been involved in where the way that the carriers treat their customers, the freight forwarders, and the, ne the potential neglect that we've seen over the last 12 months where the rates have been high. When this all calms down, and believe me, from end customer, importer, forwarder, and carrier, we're all looking for the new normalization so it calms down and we could all ship and understand what the future of the market looks like. We're still in a position where if the carriers come back with allocations, we, we need to take them because there are only so few methods of, or a few options and lines available for us to, to move our customers' cargo. So yeah, I think it's an interesting point where when we've needed the, the carrier's support, when it's been tough, we haven't felt that the loyalty that we've put into the relationship and the support that we've offered has, has been returned. I think one of the biggest challenges as well, logistically, for us has been when it's been tough and when the rates have been high, the service from the carriers, so internally in the UK for us specifically, trying to get hold of operational arms of, of carriers has been really difficult as well. You mentioned there about even when you get an allocation and you're willing to pay more, what sort of premiums are you being forced to pay? Can you give me any idea in terms of percentage or the actual rates that you're, you're having to pay over and above maybe what we see as printed rates that are like average rates from the major sort of data sources? Yeah, I think we've all seen in the last 18 months, peak season surcharges come in, port congestion surcharges, which have been added to contracts, whereas previously a, a named account allocation would have been inclusive of, of any or the majority of the surcharges outside of any sort of um, force majeures or anything significant. But it's more the delivery of the, the contracts as well. So for example, one of the carriers gives us a, or has maintained allocation for us throughout the pandemic but their ability to control that empty equipment, which we know is a challenge for the carriers. This isn't an exercise where we want to, you know, put the carriers in particularly a bad light because we understand their challenges of equipment and delays and, and charges and um, restitution of equipment in different areas. But I think that the key thing for our customers has been the desire to be able to plan and when an allocation's in place, bookings are released, and then there isn't an empty container there to load the goods. The customer is unable to ship as a freight forwarder. Our credibility is, is challenged because we agree these contracts on behalf of our customers. And then when everything seems to be in line, empty container isn't there to be filled. Fundamentally, we lose credibility. And so therefore that challenges our business model as well. The rates have been particularly high for the spot market, which has been well documented. The named account rates that we're seeing this year in line with the other forwarders and other BCOs. They've started to settle, but are still two, three, if not four times what they were from previous years. So they're the kind of rate levels that our customers are having to pay to move their cargo. And, you know, they're still significantly increased from previous years and pre-pandemic levels. So just to clarify there, Chris, so you're all getting quoted rates that are two, three, four times higher than even 2021. Yeah, very much so. So in 2021, we'd started to see the increase, but a lot of the contracts were fixed right at the start in January. So therefore the full impact of the increase in rates weren't felt in the, in the named account agreements. And I think when we've come to renew this year in December and, and the end of quarter one, we are starting to see levels that are easily two, three times above what, what they were previously. And also shipping lines are looking for longer term commitments. So typically a, a named account agreement would have been out for 12 months to give protection and allocation. We've, we've got agreements now in place for 12 months and 24 months as well. So a slightly longer term approach.
what are you doing to work around these challenges? I think the key thing has been the agility and the same for ourselves and another freight forwarders is when the traditional carriers aren't able to offer you the allocation and, and protection and support that you need, you have to look for an alternative. Previously, it's been a market with huge and high barriers to entry, so there hasn't been an alternative, but there's been a rise of the charter operator, which for freight forwarders of our volume, either locally within the UK and targeted areas or across the UK. So we've started working Mike, with, a, with a charter operator who's predominantly looking to support freight forwarders as in shipping lines or traditional carriers used to, running smaller vessels, sharper services, but able to offer sensible rates in today's market and allocations that we're able to offer to our customers. They're not, it's not without its challenges, but every line is, you know, is encountering these at the moment. But for the first time, the rise of a smaller operator in the traditional carrier market has given us the agility to be able to not solely rely on traditional carriers and be able to embrace this sort of new uh, entry into the market. So the lesson for lines there is give, give us the service that we require or the space that we require, or we'll find another way. Yeah, very much so. I think there's a place for everybody in the market. I think respecting the support that ultimately the customers and the freight forwarders are able to offer should be treated with more value when it's a yield-based strategy as when, as when the shipping lines are looking for extra cargo from other sources. So very much so. Chris Higgins, thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. Mike, thanks for having me on. Just as we wrap up, while some forwarders and shippers are obviously struggling to find space, Mike, you've also been hearing that lines are now going to forwarders and asking for cargo. Now that on some lanes, at least, there's signs of the market softening. So this varied picture is probably illustrative of a market that's going to remain volatile for, for some time ahead. Yes, I mean, it does appear that some of the carriers are coming out from their piding, basically. And somebody said to me, the worm is beginning to turn slightly. You know, many of the carriers have just dropped the forwarders like a stone. But one forwarder told me the other day, he taken great delight in telling this uh, particular carrier who rang him up, asking how he was and what sort of day he was having to go for a, a long run off a short pier or more likely something less polite. Well, I, I think, yeah, the boot might well be on the other foot at some point and we'll see how that plays out. There's, that's not the only variable out there, though, is that there's also a lack of tonnage, which takes away some flexibility in the container line market. Yes, I think we, we have several factors here. You have the likes of MSC, CMA, CGM, a few of the other carriers uh, just hoovering up tonnage uh, like there was no tomorrow, buying any ship that comes on the market that's floating. I mean, something like 500 container ships have been acquired on the S&P market in the last 18 months or so. And many of the other charter ships have been tied up in really long-term charters of three years or more. So effectively, this takes away that flexible charter market that you generally have that sees you through the peaks and the troughs. So there's just going to be no flexibility there whatsoever. It's great if the market remains firm, but you know, somebody said to me the other day, what, what happens if the demand falls significantly? What will those carriers do with all the ships that they have bought or charging in long-term at sky-high rates? That's the question for them, of course, but they're obviously very bullish. They're charging in really long-term. They're paying top dollar for the ships to buy and to charter. And they've obviously got no intention of seeing their rates coming down because they can't afford that. 
the question is, of course, is will demand soften with inflation and all these other issues that are coming to hit us? Just finally, Mike, a story I couldn't ignore. In the UK, we've had a right royal mess over P&O ferries, which has sacked some 800 crew members without notice, did it in an awful way. They tried to bring in agency workers almost overnight in March. What were they thinking? Well, it, exactly. Um, an absolutely appalling way to treat its staff, some of which worked for P&O ferries for over 20 years. I've taken many of the P&O ferries and they're always very proud of their ships and whatever. A lot of them obviously live on them for a long time. I mean, to think that you can just dispose of your biggest asset, which is your staff in a three minute recorded video, beggars belief, effectively, you know, they, they, they destroyed the iconic P&O Ferries brand in, in, in those 180 seconds. As you said, what were they thinking? Talking about the branding element of this, P&O is owned by DP World, which has spent a lot of money on branding and image and public re relations. I mean, could they have handled this anywhere themselves as DP World? It's difficult to, to think that they could have done. I mean, it, it is one, I'd say the biggest PR disaster I've ever seen, and it would take DPW a long time to repair the damage if they ever do. Mike Wackett, thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. My pleasure, Mike. I'd like to thank TAC Index, the Lodestar's air freight data provider and Zenita, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. A shout out to OEC's Jason Haith for his marvellous baritone introduction to this podcast. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon.